My name is Lily Madden, and I'm a proud Aranda, Bunjalung, Kalkadun woman from Gadigal country. The Daily Oz acknowledges that this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people and pays respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We pay our respects to the first peoples of these countries, both past and present. Hello and welcome to The Daily Oz. It's Sam. Welcome to TDA's summer series. I hope you're having a nice couple of weeks over summer, whether you're working, taking some time off, headed to a music festival or just, you know, hanging out with family and friends. This week, we're going to share more of our favourite deep dives from 2023. From some of our most popular interviews to some stories you might have missed, I guess we're trying to keep you company here over the summer. We'll be back to some regular programming next week. Until then, here is our summer series. Ketamine is commonly used in medicine and by vets as an anaesthetic. It's a disassociative drug, meaning it acts on brain chemicals, and it can stop the brain from interpreting pain messages. Now, it's also being used to treat depression after low doses of the drug were found to quickly and significantly improve depressive symptoms. We know a lot of young people, a lot of TDA listeners live with depression, but for some people, traditional treatment options like antidepressants, therapy, that doesn't always actually work. So for those people and others who might not be able to take antidepressant medication for other reasons, ketamine treatment could actually change the way mental ill health is treated in Australia. But honestly, I had never actually heard of ketamine being used in this way before this point, Zara. So you can imagine I had a lot of questions and I put those to an expert in this field. Dr. Adam Bayes is a senior research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. He is a clinical academic psychiatrist with a special interest in mood disorders. Dr. Adam Bayes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. First of all, what is ketamine and why is it useful in clinical settings to treat depression? Ketamine is a anesthetic drug that's been around for a long time. About 20 years ago, there was some pivotal studies where there was sub-anesthetic doses of ketamine, so smaller doses, administered to patients with treatment-resistant depression. So this is where patients have failed multiple trials of standard treatments, oral antidepressants, psychological therapies, and it was found to have both a rapid antidepressant effect and also the effect was quite pronounced, so quite a large impact on depression. And since that time, there's been more and more research into the area of ketamine for treatment-resistant depression, and it's been found to be very effective in that patient group. What do we know about the scale of treatment-resistant depression? You know, what is it that we understand about it? Obviously, you know, depression, it's a complex diagnosis and there's different sort of manifestations of depression. So there's more mild forms of depression that might be the result of some life circumstances and then all the way through to the more severe biological forms of depression where there might be a strong family history of depression. You start to need to use medications like antidepressants or other drugs. And, you know, in the severe cases, things like electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is still a highly effective treatment and is probably around about a third of patients classified as having treatment-resistant depression. So it's quite a high number. Yeah, that's a really significant number. I think that will come as a surprise to a fair few of our listeners. In terms of treatment options for this difficult-to-treat depression, are there many options? I know you've mentioned ECT, but considering that ketamine treatment is, you know, a relatively new kind of phenomenon. There have been exciting advancements also in neurostimulation, so things like transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, which is very powerful magnets brought close to the, the skull. 
But ketamine is exciting in the sense that in mental health, it's good to have an assortment of different options. Yeah, it just gives patients yet another option to get well. A lot of people may have only heard of ketamine used illegally or as an anaesthetic. How does this treatment work? How long does it take? And how does it differ in that clinical setting from other uses of ketamine? You would have heard of people recreationally using ketamine, and this is because it can cause that dissociative effects and have these sort of psychoactive effects. But I guess I'm talking about it very much in a clinical medical setting where the drug is 100% pure pharmaceutical grade ketamine and it's administered in a setting and patients are carefully screened. Patients are usually on an antidepressant as well. It can be administered in various ways. It's either usually injected under medical supervision or there is a form called esketamine, which is uh, intranasal spray. So the ketamine tends to have its maximal antidepressant effect the next day And then it does tend to wear off. And so patients then have a usually a second treatment, at least in the acute course. You're trying to get the patient from being in a major depressive episode. The the goal is to get them into remission where they're not no longer meeting criteria for depression. It works quite differently to standard antidepressant treatments like, you know, your SSRIs or Prozac is the brand name of a famous SSRI. And these act on the serotonin system. This is the kind of feel good neurotransmitter. Ketamine actually doesn't act at least directly on serotonin, but it actually acts on a completely different set of receptors. And I guess the other thing is, yes, it works much more rapidly than standard oral antidepressants. At least in some cases, you can see patients significantly improve the next day. So that's pretty incredible. And I think sometimes people think that the patient might be sort of getting high. It's not that So while they have the acute effects of ketamine and they might feel dissociated and have some kind of an unusual experience, that wears off within the first hour and they're usually discharged at the two-hour mark and they feel completely back to, you know, they don't have any kind of dissociation. But we're talking about it's actually an antidepressant effect that's more enduring. How is the long-term or longer-term success then of this treatment measured if there's that sort of immediate relief of maybe depressive symptoms? Is this a treatment that is lifelong for people with treatment-resistant depression? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I think initially there was certainly hope that patients might, say, receive a course of ketamine, so say a four-week course, for example, and then they'll remain well. Certainly, you do see that in some patients. Clinically, though, what we're seeing is some patients go into what we call maintenance treatments. And this might mean that they have a treatment, say, every week or maybe stretched out to every two or three weeks, which keeps them well. As can happen with other medications, is there a dependency over time or a resistance perhaps over time to ketamine treatment? You can't become addicted as such to, uh, to Prozac, right? Ketamine, it is, that is actually possible. While we don't tend to see that in clinical settings, it's something to be mindful of. And that's why it's also a restricted substance. We're very cautious about that because we're not wanting to create a further problem for the patient. We put a lot of time into ensuring they're not becoming dependent It's also why ketamine is administered in the clinic. Are there any other risks or sort of safety concerns associated with receiving the treatment? Yeah, look, there are. Um, And I think like any medication, you know, has a side effect profile. 
and ketamine is no different. So some of the, the key things that we monitor for, there can be blood pressure increases. Certainly acutely as well, patients, you know, can become dissociated, unsteady on their feet. Then in the long run, I mentioned risk of dependence. Ketamine can irritate the bladder and sometimes ketamine can affect the liver. You know, ketamine services that are out there, they should be monitoring for acute and cumulative side effects. I noted that at least in the clinic that recently opened in Melbourne, that young people are excluded, under 25s are excluded from accessing the treatment. I guess this ties into kind of broader questions about barriers to access, you know, cost, who can access it. So, you know, the kind of demand versus that. I mean, generally it's 18 and over purely because there's more data on the safety and effectiveness in that age group. I know there, there has been a big multi-sensor study looking at ketamine in younger people that have depression. You mentioned cost. It's a big one because ketamine is, it's sort of in this interesting zone where it's, you've got the two formulations, the, the anesthetic, which has been around for, you know, 50 years. All medications have a kind of license and they have indications. It still remains only licensed for anesthesia. If it's administered for anything other than anesthesia, it's, it's off label. Then there's the new formulation, which is intranasal S-ketamine. So it's a variant of ketamine. So that has been TGA approved in Australia. But the issue is it's not covered by the PBS yet. There's a period of time where the drug companies have to make a case to the government, you know, will you subsidize this drug? So patients can certainly go out and, you know, if they see their psychiatrist, their psychiatrist might recommend the intranasal S-ketamine, but it's anywhere between six to $800 per dose. Wow. And so, and the usual dosing, as I said, is twice per week initially for the first four weeks. So that's, that's a big cost, right? Enormous. That's $1,600 or more. Per week. Per week. Uh, and that's because it's not on the PBS. The other thing is when you go and see a doctor, most things have an item number. So, for example, if you go and have your, your appendix removed, there'd be a sort of item number. Medicare reimburses you or covers that, right? So for ketamine treatment, which, as I explained, you know, it involves coming in to the clinic, you're there, you're monitored, you're seen by a psychiatrist, there's two hours of monitoring and you discharge. There's no item number for that. Not just the drug, but for the whole process, there's no item number. So, again, all of that clinical time is paid for out of pocket by the patient. So at the moment, we are in a situation where other than there's a few public clinics where it's sort of subsidised by whatever funds the hospital might have, the patient pays out of pocket. Waiting for that magic number. Yeah, and it's a big issue really because, you know, it speaks to, you know, inequality and, and, and equity and particularly, I guess, younger people are less likely to have the funds. Do you think there's any stigma associated with the idea or the reputation of ketamine that may have impacted access? I think there is some stigma in the sense of certainly whenever I read a newspaper article, or at least up until a few years ago, it would always say horse tranquilizer, which is I always found a bit sensationalist because ketamine is used as a regular anesthetic in humans. It was only researching for this podcast that I realised that horse tranquilizer wasn't the original purpose no, so or sole purpose of ketamine. It's a bit sensationalist. And whereas you know, ketamine is used day in, day out in surgeries, it's used in children for the purposes of anesthesia. I guess the recreational use, etc., it has become a bit more controversial. But, you know, it's a medicine like any other medications. And if you just look at the science, it does seem to be effective in treatment-resistant depression. But if you look at opioids and things like that, pain medications are 
misused. So any any drug really can be misused. But I think the key thing is for us in mental health is providing access to it in such a way that's safe. It's in a controlled setting. It's not going to be diversion to recreational users and it's not going to cause further problems for, for patients. Your colleague, Professor Colleen Liu, yes. she described accessibility to be the next challenge for the treatment. Where do you see ketamine treatment moving in Australia in the next five to ten years? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Look, I think the accessibility question, really it's it's getting this MBS item number, the Medicare item number, is going to be critical. If that gets up, that will mean a broader section of the community can access the treatment. I imagine it will become rolled out into public mental health. Obviously, there'll need to be an infrastructure there and, and all the appropriate training and all the knowledge, you know, that goes into this because it is quite a specialised treatment. It will become more mainstream for treatment-resistant depression. There is enough data now to say that it's effective and safe. I think it'll be also getting it out into regional centres as well. That'll be exciting to see it rolled out and available to more people. I think that was a really interesting chat. I know I learned a lot from it. If you did too, send it to a friend. It might be a conversation starter, you never know. Have a great day and we'll be back again tomorrow. Tomorrow. 